Bokotov, good morning. Welcome to our Aliyah day. Glad that you're with me on this first day of the week as we are entering into a new parasha study. This is parasha Kitisa. And uh, we are in this parasha talking about elements of the tabernacle and other uh, critically important things. We are going to be looking at the first Aliyah, of course, and really the first part of the first Aliyah because just so happens that this particular Aliyah uh, covers a lot of ground. It's rather long, and so I don't think that we'll be able to get to every single thing in our time together this morning, but we're going to cover some uh, initial uh, parts. We are in the Art Scroll Chumash on page 485. This is uh, chapter 30 and beginning in uh, verse 11. Again, glad that you're with me. All of you people who are watching from all over the uh, fruited plain and even the world, welcome. Hope you're having a great week. Hope your week gets off to a great week, Baruch Hashem. So we begin reading, and it says, Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, When you take a census of the children of Israel according to their numbers, every man shall give Adonai an atonement for his soul when counting them, <clears throat> so that there will not be a plague among them when counting them. This shall they give. Everyone shall... Uh, pa- who passes through the census, a half shekel of the sacred shekel. The shekel is 20 garas. Half of a shekel is a portion to Adonai. Everyone who passes through the census from 20 years of age and up, 20 years of age and up, shall give the portion of Adonai. Just want to point this out, because I think that we've made this point um, previously. But one of the primary objections when you run into people and you find um, they find out that you are uh, attempting to live a Torah true life, just like the Messiah, all the, all the apostles, and all the heroes of the Bible lived, you know, when we're trying to be like all the heroes of the Bible, including the Mashiach. And one of the th- objections they have is they say, well, wait a minute, back in the old days, back in the, the Torah days, we just went around killing people, stoning people to death. And there's all kinds of examples that they give of that because they don't know anything aside from what the cursory reading they had of the quote-unquote Old Testament. But one thing they say is, do you stone your children? And so, obviously, the answer is no. Uh, There's lots of reasons why we don't. Um, It's also interesting to point out that in Jewish history, there has never been a child stoned to death, ever. Um, but I wanted to make this point because it says here that we're not allowed to count in the census until you're 20 years old. So what does this teach us? Well, if we read uh, the Talmud and we read other uh, halakhic sources, we find that somebody is not even eligible to be reckoned as a full-grown adult until they reach the age of 20. In the United States, it's 18, or I guess it's 18 in the United States, probably not in every single state, but in Texas anyway, it's 18. But under Torah law, it's 20. So one is not even eligible to be brought before a court to face a charge that could result in a death penalty sentence, not even qualified for that until you're the age of 20. So it's talking about a child... It doesn't mean, as people think, a little bitty boy or girl in elementary school. 
And then even at the age of 20, there was a significant uh, number of, uh, of, of due process procedures and rules that had to be followed in order for somebody to be convicted of a death sentence. And in fact, the Talmud records that a Sanhedrin that issued a death sentence once, one time, once in 70 years at 7-0, 70 años, 70 years, one time that they did it, they were considered a bloodthirsty Sanhedrin. So uh, in Judaism, people went out of the courts, I should say, went out of their way not to issue a death sentence. They, the, the goal was to help the person make tshuva. The goal was to bring the person to a point of repentance. So just want to point that out as we're talking here about the half shekel is for 20 years old and up. So it says, everyone who passes through the census from 20 years old and up shall give the portion of Adonai. The wealthy shall not increase and the destitute shall not decrease from a half shekel to give the portion of Adonai to atone for your souls. This goes back to a, another concept that Hashem does not make distinctions. There's no preferential treatment for the wealthy. There's no preferential treatment for the poor either. So when people uh, just the, the, when people have the concept in their heart of well we want the wealthy to pay all the taxes and we want to give the poor a break they don't pay any taxes that is not consistent with Torah law everybody is the same everybody's equal this is why in God's economy it's ten percent period it's ten percent if you're a uh, if you have ten billion dollars in the bank and it's ten percent if you make twenty thousand dollars a year it's ten percent period and if you are uh, someone who's Wealthy, you give. And if you're somebody who's poor, you give. Everybody gives. This in the same way, the sages say that when you're going to court, uh, the judge is not allowed to have preferential treatment for the poor person, nor is he allowed to have preferential treatment for the wealthy person. Everybody has to be judged fairly and honestly and uh, you know uniformly. Not allowed to feel sorry for somebody. Oh, he's poor, so let's you know, let's let's award him the money. Or, you know, he's rich. You know, he doesn't need the money. We're not allowed to do that. We have to judge it on the merits of the case. You know, the facts of the case. So it says in verse sixteen, "You shall take the silver of the atonements from the children of Israel and give it for the work of the tenth of meeting, and it shall be a remembrance before Adonai for the children of Israel to atone for your souls." I think I mentioned before that this initial atonement money was used to build the foundation of the tabernacle and also the some of the silver rings on the outer court so that the tabernacle is built on a foundation of silver and it's held up, which, by the way, represents redemption. And keep in mind that the gematria of silver is also the same as the gematria of Yosef. So we have Yosef, who's the Mashiach bin Yosef, who brings redemption. The, the very foundation of our faith is built on Mashiach bin Yosef. It's built on silver. It's built on redemption. And it's also held up by redemption. But what was the money used for besides that? The money was used uh, to purchase the offerings, the, the, the communal atonement offerings. What are we talking about? We're talking about the lamb offered in the morning and the lamb offered at, at night, uh, in the evening, uh, for example. And this is teaching us a valuable lesson that by contributing our money, that money gets used for offerings, 
So therefore, our money translates into atonement. There is a, there's a spiritual connection there. We're going to learn more about that as we uh, go through this chapter. So the Shani Laver, verse 17. Now we switch gears and talk, start talking about the Kior, the Shani Laver in the, in the Mizbeach. Uh, not the Mizbeach, Slika, in the uh, Tabernacle, the Mishkan. This is the uh, Kior, is after you go to the Mizbeach, the next step is the Kior. So it says here, this is, by the way, one of my favorite um, pieces of furniture in the tabernacle. I just love, I really enjoy the, uh, the, the picture of the Kior. It says, uh, Adonai spoke to Moshe saying, You shall make a copper laver. It's made out of copper. And its base of copper for washing. Place it between the tent of a meeting and the altar. And put water there from it. Slika, from it, Aaron and his son shall wash their hands together with their feet. Whenever they come to the tent of meeting, they are washed with water so they not die. Or when they approach the altar to serve, to raise up a, a smoke of a fire off into Hashem, they shall wash their hands and feet and not die. It shall be for them an eternal decree for him and for his offspring for their generations. Verse 22 about the anointing oil. Adonai spoke to Moshe saying, Now now you take for yourself choice spices, 500 shekel weights of pure myrrh, fragrant cinnamon, half of which shall be 250, 250 of fragrant cane, 500 of cassia, and the sacred shekel weight, and a hen of olive oil. Of it shall you make oil of sacred anointment, a blended compound, the handiwork of a perfumer. It shall remain oil of sacred anointment. With it shall you anoint the tent of meeting, the ark of the testimonial tablets, the table and all its utensils, the menorah and its utensils, and the incense altar, the elevation offering altar and all its utensils, the laver and its base, and you shall sanctify them, and they shall remain holy of holies. Whatever touches them shall become holy. Again, whatever touched the Mashiach was purified and holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and sanctify them to minister to me. You shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, This shall remain for me, oil of sacred atonement, ointment, slika, for your generations. It shall not be smeared on human flesh, and you shall not duplicate it in its formulation. It is holy. It shall remain holy for you. Anyone who shall compound it, its like, or who shall put it upon an alien, shall be cut off from his people. So we're not allowed to have this perfume. Uh, we're not allowed to... Uh, you know, Christian Dior cannot make this perfume and sell it. It's forbidden. Not allowed to have it in powder form or oil form or the like. And then uh, our final reading for this part of the first Aliyah is about the incense. Adonai said to Moshe, Moshe, take for yourself spices, stockte, onika, galbanum, spices, and pure frankincense. And these should be of equal weight. You should make it into a spice compound, the handiwork of a perfumer. Thoroughly mixed, pure and holy. You shall grind some of it finally and place some of it before the testimony tablets and the tent of meeting, where I shall designate a time to meet with you. It shall remain a holies of holies for you. The incense that you shall make in its proportion shall you make for yourselves. It shall remain holy to you for Adonai. Whoever makes it makes it like to smell 
shall be cut off from his people. Again, we're not allowed to make that uh, incense offering either. I love what Kehol Tumash says about what is the overall meaning of Kitisa? What is the overall message that we're to glean from this Torah portion? And I like what they uh, have to write here in the opening um, comments of their uh, Humash. It says, Our day begins with complete surrender to God's will. We start this, they write, with the Modeani. Modeani Lefeneka, Melechave Kayom. says, The Modeani prayer we recite immediately upon awakening. I offer thanks to you, living and eternal King, for you have mercifully restored my soul to me. Your faith is great. So we remain absorbed, it says here, with divinity throughout our morning prayers and our Torah study. After this, we go about our daily affairs in which we experience tests and fluctuations in our divine consciousness. At the end of the day, we evaluate the strength of our connection with God as tested by the day's events. Every day is a test. Life is a test. It's a great book by Rebetzin Ungris. Life is a test. Everything is a test. We do this in order to see whether it needs to be reinforced. What do we need to do better tomorrow? We need to take stock of our day every day. This done, we can submit ourselves to God on a higher level than before, as in the close of the bedtime prayer. Into your hand I shall place my spirit. Redeem me, O God of truth. So therefore the lesson they write of Parashatisa then is lived out every day of our lives which is to focus constantly on our ultimate goal, which is what? The final messianic redemption. Everything in our observance ultimately comes down to the Mashiach. It all comes down to the final redemption. We're living the way we live in order to bring ourselves to the reality that uh, there's going to come a time of, uh, of judgment and, and accountability and redemption, etc., 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 so let's look at a few comments here from Rabbi Monk as he's uh, sharing his thoughts on this uh, opening part of the uh, Aliyah. It says, Hashem spoke to Moshe saying, so it says, this phrase appears here for the first time since the beginning of the commandments concerning the construction of the tabernacle. Because apparently, he writes, the law of the half-shekel contribution that the Torah is now introducing is not directly related to the tabernacle itself. <clears throat> so people ask, very often, if we don't have a temple, then how do we pay the tithe? The, rea the reality is the tithe is not tied to the temple. The tithe is not tied to the temple. The tithe is all about advancing the kingdom, teaching Torah study. It's about providing uh, a, a financial way in which Torah study can be propagated. Because if everybody is, um, you know, there's people who do bivocational ministry, and that's all well and good, but, you know, that's very difficult to do. It's very very limiting to do, trust me. So it says here that that indeed, is this, that indeed is the sense that Rabbi Eliezer in the Talmud gives to it. He points out that as long as the sanctuary was in existence, each person contributed a half shekel towards the purchase of sacrifices which served to atone for him. Now that the sanctuary no longer exists, forgiveness is obtained through charity. That's from Baba Basra 9a. Now somebody might look at that and say, wait a minute, what do you mean it's through charity? So we give money, we pay God off? That's not the point. The fact of the matter is, is that 
the reason that giving charity leads to forgiveness is not because you're paying a coin, like you're buying salvation. That is not by any means the Jewish idea. But the giving of money opens up our heart, opens up our, our, our spiritual heart to God. Being generous opens ourselves up. This is why the Messiah taught about those who have an evil eye. Their whole body is dark. They're all closed up. People that don't tithe, people that don't give regularly are people that are bound up. They're closed. They're, this is why the, there's euphemisms about, about stingy people, that they're tight-fisted. What does that imply? It means that your, your fist is closed tight. There's no opening. When we give, we open up and we open up our heart to God. This is why it's associated with, uh, with repentance. It also writes here that henceforth three imperatives are to take place in lieu of the sacrificial service. These three things are connected to the sacrificial service when the temple existed, but now that it doesn't exist, these three things take the place of the, the, the sacrificial service. Why? Because these things are the basis, they're the root, they're the foundation of the sacrificial service. So what are these things? The first is teshuva, and the second is tefillah, and the third is staka. So repentance, prayer, and charity take the place of the sacrificial service. Listen, repentance, prayer, and charity. I just want to point out, because um, we are very much bonded with our uh, money, as we should be, no problem. But people are usually willing to give up prayer. Not a problem. I can pray. Usually people are willing to, to make tshuva, to repent. Yeah, no problem. I can change my ways. But you start talking about giving the half shekel or whatever, or giving the tithe or giving in period, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, is that for today? And I would just suggest that if we leave out charity, if we leave out the generosity of giving, we're giving an incomplete sacrificial service. That's the, that's the reality. We're giving an incomplete sacrificial service. It's like starting the fire, saying the blessings, and failing to put the offering on the fire and think that we've accomplished something. So we have to be generous. Not be, It's not about the money. It's really not. It's about opening up ourselves, opening up the floodgates of our hearts in order to receive the mercy of Hashem. The word staka, which we translate charity, by the way, also means righteousness. So there is a direct connection to uh, between, I should say, generosity and righteousness. So it's just something that we should be uh, cognizant of. By the way, why are we so attached to our money? Well, I suppose there's lots of reasons. But what I've, I've said for years that the reality is is that when, we, when you go to work, whatever it is you're doing, doesn't matter, there's a lot involved in that that, that really requires your very essence. You're, there's a lot of, of uh, devotion, self-sacrifice. You're going to work. You're getting up at a certain time. You're, you're planning. You're driving. You're fighting traffic. You're doing this because you, you're earning a living so you can provide for your family or provide for yourself or whatever. You're sending your kids to college, sending your kids to school. You want to buy more Torah books. You know, so you go to work and you put, you put your physical effort in. You put your mental effort in. You put your emotional effort in. You put your spiritual effort in. There's a lot of stress at work. There's a lot of turmoil. And so when you get that check, which translates into cash, 
that cash represents you. It represents your mind, will, and emotions. It represents your blood, sweat, and tears. It represents your spiritual investment. It represents the hour of drive time going and then hour of drive time coming back. It represents having to put up with the boss, put up with the customer. It represents having to figure out things. It represents your essence. A lot of times we're not willing to give up our essence, so to speak. And God says, I'm not asking you to give up anything. I'm asking you to lay down yourself so that you can draw near to me. And by the way, if you're concerned about the coins, I've already promised you that I'll give back more than you can ask or think. I'll multiply it back to you. This is why the sages say every time we give, every time we pay our tithes, give our offerings, give charity, the sages said you're guaranteed, if you do it in the right spirit, you're guaranteed at least, at very minimum, a four-time return. That's not bad. It's not a bad, it's not a bad thing, right? I'm just saying, this is why. And uh, we always have to encourage ourselves, all of us, myself included, to be generous, everybody. Because there's something about the almighty dollar or the almighty pound or the almighty ruble or the almighty uh, peso or the almighty yen or franc or whatever it is, euro, that just um, traps us. And God said, you know, it's like the rich young ruler, by the way. I am thoroughly convinced that had the rich young ruler said, you know what, you're right. I want to, I'll sell everything, I'll sell it all, and I'll follow you. Absolutely. I'm here, I'm going, I'm, right now, I'm, I'm, I'm on my way to see my accountant. We're going to, we're going to flush it all out. I'm convinced that the minute that he pulled the reins of his horse to the right or to the left to turn around and go do that, Mashiach would have said, no, 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 stop, 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 stop. Come back, come back. Do not lay your hand on the boy. <laughs> I just wanted to see if it was, uh, if you were willing to sacrifice your only, be, your only begotten I just wanted to see if you would sacrifice that which you loved. But now that I see that you're willing, don't 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 uh don't lay a hand on him. Why? Because in Judaism we're not allowed to give everything up. It's only 10%. But there was something in that man's heart that Yeshua saw that there was an element of greed. And he and I'm thoroughly convinced that he had had he been willing to give everything, Yeshua would have said, "Don't give everything. I just want to make sure you're willing to give it." We have to have that attitude in our hearts. Not that God is going to have us give everything. You understand what I'm saying? Of course you do. So it talks about, um, in verse 13, this shall they give. It says, Rashi explains the word Zay, this, to indicate that Hashem showed Moses, Moses an image of a coin made of fire. Moses was asking, okay, you want them to give this, what's the this? And so Hashem showed him a coin of fire. In effect, Moses was concerned how money, that is the symbol of the material aspect of our lives, could acquire the sanctity devoted by the expression shekel hakodesh, that is the holy or the sacred shekel. Furthermore, how could this simple coin serve to redeem sins? What's our money have to do with it? What's money got to do? Got to do with it? What does it have to do with it? How can it, how can it, how can money become our redemption? So Hashem then showed him, it says here, the likeness of a coin of fire 
to indicate that when money is offered with the sacred fire of love of God, it can serve the noblest purposes. That's in Midrash Tankuma. Now think about that for a second. When we give of our finances to God, we are literally offering up those dollars that you give, those coins that you give, literally become dollars or, or coins of fire in Shemayim. That's really, uh, that's really the holy way of burn through your money. You think that your money's burning a hole in your pocket like my grandfather used to say? Well, that's the way to make it holy. Turn your money into holy fire. My God is a consuming fire. Memtet is an angel of fire. Do you realize how powerful that is, what I just said? You write a check and you give it or you, or you give charity. That money that you give, that 10%, literally becomes an offering of fire before the throne of God. So it says in the Kehol Tumash, God showed Moshe a fiery coin. It says, as we've seen previously, God instructed the people to donate materials to the tabernacle to atone for their involvement in the incident of the golden calf. But Moshe was perplexed. It says here again, how, how can I uh, take a coin? How can a coin accomplish anything like this? And it points out here that silver is one of the, one of the lower kind of elements. So how can one of the lowest elements bring a level of tshuva, a level of righteousness, a level of, of kadusha to God? How is that possible? So Moshe was shown a coin of fire, they write, not by an angel, not by an angel, but by God himself. Why? For God is not bound by the rules of any order, natural or otherwise. Can you say virgin birth? God is not bound by the rules of any order, natural or otherwise. You say, well, God would never do that. Why? Well, because this, what are you talking about? So it says here, God demonstrate that in the case of the half shekel, opposites can become one. Silver, the lowest element of earth, becomes fire, the highest element. God's point was that the source of the half shekel is spirituality. For that is true of every physical object. Nor was his point that the half shekel becomes a vehicle for spirituality, for that is the true that is true of any object used to fulfill a commandment. Rather, God's point was that even the physical half shekel can be transformed into fire and therefore have the power to redeem a soul. It all depends on the spirit. It says this transformation occurs by virtue of the essence of our souls which are a part of God. The soul's essence never sins. Only the superficial aspect of the soul they write manifest in the body is susceptible to the ploys of the evil inclination. If we involve the essence of our souls and our entire being in what we do, we can harmoniously blend fire and silver. A coin given without feeling is indeed cold and unremarkable. This is uh, part of the Musar class that was taught last week that if we give because we are uh, coerced into giving, or we're giving some other reason, we want to we want to give because we want to we want people to uh, uh, you know see us, or 
somehow reflect well on us or if we're just moved by our emotions like my wife used the example that uh we see a picture of a of a of a dog in a cage and our heart is moved and we give that's not really the highest level of giving but our giving needs to come out of a out of a a spirit of generosity this is why in jewish homes there are stocka boxes everywhere and one might wonder, why do we have stock a box in the kitchen? Why do we have it in the bedroom? Why do we have it, uh, particularly stock a box in front of the candles where, where we're going to light for Sabbath? And we put, we put a, a coin in there, maybe uh, whatever change we have in our pockets, um, whatever. We, we try to train ourselves on a regular basis to do that. You know, why? Is it because, how I many, what can you do with a, a box full of coins? It's going to take a long time for that to be uh, significant enough to matter to anybody that you give it away to. So what's the issue? The whole point is to train ourselves to be generous. Train ourselves to let go of ourselves. Remember I just said money was part of ourself. Let go of ourselves. Give ourselves away. Make it a, 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 a regular effort to put a coin in the box and in so doing train ourselves to be generous it's a conditioning a conditioning of the soul because a coin given without feeling is indeed cold and unremarkable but they write but a coin given with the warmth and enthusiasm of the soul is essentially fire live spirituality and can atone for the greatest gravest sins this was the coin of fire shown to moses and i love this it's a they they share a little parable from the from the balshemtov it says a person studied to be a goldsmith and a silversmith his teacher taught him all the details necessary to become an expert but assuming it's obvious he left out one detail that was to light the fire. <laughs> he was doing everything exactly the way he was supposed to do it. He was going through all the, the motions of being a silversmith, of being someone who um, would form the metal and all that kind of stuff. The only problem was he forgot to light the fire, which teaches us a lesson. Without the fire, you can't mold the metal. Without a fire, you can't shape it into jewelry. Without a fire, you can't take a lump of silver and turn it into something valuable. Which teaches us without the fire of the Ruach HaKodesh, without, without the fire of truth and intensity, without the fire of spirituality, we can go through the motions all day long. And it accomplishes nothing. And so our goal is to, is to do what priests did all the time, is to stoke the fire. Is to... to, to constantly think about ourselves and, and, and examine ourselves. Where do we need to improve? Are we reading the Torah portion? Are we washing our hands in the morning? Are we saying the blessings? Are we, are we, you know, no one's, you say, well, I'm not perfect. Of course you're not. Neither am I. None of us are. The fire is never perfect. Sometimes you have to move a log. Sometimes you have to blow on it. Sometimes you have to add fuel to it. Sometimes you have to poke it with a stick to get the blaze going. If you let it sit, the blaze will, will eventually, eventually die. Many of you have been camping. 
You start a fire, you got a big hot fire blazing, it's beautiful, it's gorgeous. You let it just sit there, it eventually will die out. Or some type of foreign substance will flow into it and you'll start a forest fire. So you got to protect the fire. Moving on to the, the copper laver. The copper laver was used to wash the hands and the feet of the priests. So Ankalos translates, uh, they shall wash, when he was writing his uh, Aramaic translation in the first century, as they shall sanctify. So the water of the laver was very powerful in that it had the ability to sanctify. So it says here, after washing his hands and his feet in the kior, placed between the tabernacle and the Mizbeach, the Kohen feels consecrated and ready to perform his holy service, which he immediately proceeds to do. The hands and feet are extremities, they write, of our physical bodies, and consecrating them implies consecrating the whole body. So when we wash our hands ceremonially in the morning, it is like unto having a mikvah. It's similar to that. This is what Netilat Yadayim is all about. You would go to the altar and you would come near to God. You would wash your hands in order to go into the uh, holy place to serve God. When we get up in the morning and wash our hands, what we're essentially saying is that we are dedicating our lives this day to your service. And it's very powerful. Washing the hands each morning before prayer is derived from this law, Rabbi Monk says. The first act of the Kohanim before performing their holy duty each morning was to wash their hands and feet. Similarly, we dedicate our whole being to serving God through the act of, of hand washing. The blessing we say over the washing of the hands conveys this important message that it's not about hygiene. It's not about hygiene. In fact, netilat yadayim can be translated as raising the hands. We translate it washing the hands. God has commanded us to wash the hands. But netilat yadayim can actually, the, the actual literal translation is to raise up our hands. The implication is to raise up our holy hands. This is the elevation of our mundane existence to a level of holiness. When you wash your hands in the morning, you become a priest, as it were, in the service of God. So it says, in this process, our hands as well as our whole being are consecrated to serving God. It is also worth noting that having clean hands is the metaphor, according to Psalms 24.4, to having a pure heart. So, it's also pointed out here that the kior, this is our final uh, comment here. What made the kior special uh, among so many other things was that the women of Israel gave up their copper mirrors. Their, they, the kior was made of copper, but the, it was made of copper mirrors. They gave up their copper mirrors in order to make the kior. Now, Mirrors are generally and usually very important to women, more so even to men, because women look at themselves in the mirror and, and uh, you know, make themselves, uh, fix themselves up or whatever with makeup or jewelry or whatever. And so this is why many women, obviously, uh, carry around their purse, little compacts with mirrors and so on. 
So a mirror has a special place in the heart of a woman. But what made the women of Israel so remarkable was that they gave up their mirrors for the service of God because they realized that their beauty did not come from the mirror in their tents or in their bedrooms, but the true beauty of God came from the mirror that was the reflection of God's word. The thing is, is that this is what Yaakov in his letter in the New Testament, as the supposed New Testament, but anyway, um, what he said was, if you are a hearer of the word only and not a doer, it's like someone who sees his reflection in the mirror and walks away and forgets what he looks like. That is an allusion to the cure, to the, to the uh, shiny laver. That when you walk up to the shiny laver, it wasn't just about washing your hands. It wasn't just about washing your feet. It's about looking at yourself in the reflection and taking an account of who you are. This is why we need to be looking at ourselves in the reflection of God's word, his holy mirror, the Torah, to find where the blemishes are and if and when we find them, to take the water of the word and wash them away. That's the beauty of the labor, that it transcends the uh, physical and brings it into the spiritual, where we realize that the value is not in just looking at ourselves but the value is in looking at ourselves with respect and relationship to who God, how God sees us and making those corrections. To walk up to the laver and to look at ourselves in the reflection and to walk away without applying the holy water would be and is a grave and tragic error. Let us not do that, but let us look into God's word and see our reflection and act where we need to act. End of our Aliyah today. May you have a blessed, wonderful, and amazing day. And with God's help, we'll see everybody tomorrow. Shalom, shalom.